0: Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Today's passage, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13, which is actually, a, it's the, the part of Mark that deals with the end times. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but, but recently I've been hearing more conversations about the end times. I've been, I've been getting more questions personally as a pastor, people asking me questions related to the end times and things they've heard over the past. And now it seems like, well, maybe some of these things are starting to materialize. And, and so it's become a, a topic that's more, I guess, kind of on people's awareness um, but I think it triggers different responses, doesn't it? When you, you think about the end times, just take a moment to think about it. If I say end times, what sort of emotions or responses does it trigger and invoke in you? I've thought about it. It's, it's actually quite a, a spectrum. I think it brings up uh, apathy sometimes. Sometimes people think, but well, nothing's ever going to change. It can bring up indifference. It can bring up um, mocking or unbelief and ridicule as if nothing's, nothing's ever going to change. It can bring up fear because I don't know how things are going to play out. I don't know what's going to happen to me and my family. It can bring up control issues, trying, just trying to figure it all out. It can bring up hope. And sometimes it can bring up a mixture of all those things. They may feel conflicted. I can feel multiple things, hope and other less positive emotions. As a child, the end times, teachings, topics, it brought up for me, the, the dominant thing that it brought up was fear. Uh, I, was a, I was a child of the 70s and 80s, um, meaning that, uh, that I grew up here, and I grew up, I, I said this a few weeks ago, I, I grew up as a, as a theist, okay, not an atheist, a theist. That means I believed in God. Now I wasn't surrendered to Jesus. I hadn't surrendered my life to him. So I, I, I wasn't a follower of Jesus. And yet I believed in God. And I heard a lot of teachings. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a private Christian school. I grew up in a Christian family. And so, and at the time there was a dominant school of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of uh, the end things, right? And eschatology, there was a particular form of eschatology, a particular stream of it that was being taught that, was, that became very popular in the 70s and 80s. It was actually relatively new in terms of, of teachings about eschatology, but it became very popular in the 70s and 80s, and so it spun off movies and books and things like that. And so I grew up going to seminars and watching these movies, and they scared the bejesus out of me. Uh, Christian... Can I call them Christian horror movies? <laughs> That's a little extreme, maybe. I haven't seen them as an adult. As a kid, they were horror movies. Things, movies like Thief in the Night, Distant Thunder. Um, yeah, Hal Lindsey's book, right? There's all kinds of stuff that came out that it was specifically, and, and here's what, here, so here, just real quick, here's one way it affected me. One of the teachings in terms of this, view of eschatology and end times was that there would be a rapture where God would, Jesus would come. The second coming of Jesus, Jesus would come and take uh, all of the, the, the saints, the, those who were his followers, both dead and alive away. And the rest of creation would be left as it is for a period of time. And during that period of time, there would be a great tribulation, and persecution. Okay. Now there's other schools of thought. They all believe that Jesus will come back for his people. But what happens at that time? There's there's some differences there, and I'll talk about that in just a minute here. But um, but because of that, there was a few times where I had a few close calls, a few scares, um, and, and so I, there's a couple that stick out in my mind specifically. So I, again, I was a, grew up in a Christian school. Um, my my family, I in high school, middle school, high school. Both my parents were working, so oftentimes I would go home from school and I would have a period of. Uh, hour and a half to two hours after school where I was home alone. And that was fine. I liked the time alone. I'm an introvert. Uh, and so I would typically make a snack and do some homework and watch Magnum PI. <laughs> Magnum was on from four till five, but at by 530, everybody should be home half past Magnum. At least somebody should be home. And, uh, And I had a few times where people didn't show up. Now, this is in the 80s where we didn't have cell phones. We couldn't just, you know, text each other and say, hey, where are you? Like, there was no cell phones. There was no caller ID. There was none of that. And so when nobody show up, it would get a little bit scary. And right around half past magnum, I'm thinking, maybe the rapture happened. My family's gone. I'm here to face the guillotine. I'm not, I mean, it's kind of, but it was real. Here's what I would do. (laughs) I didn't have the the pastor's phone number at our church, but I had the receptionist's phone number. I would call her. (laughs) And if she answered, I would just hang up, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right? There's no caller ID, so there was no, she couldn't, you know, she couldn't. Now, if I knew then what I know now about church receptionists, (laughs) I'm kidding. kidding. That was my response was fear. Jesus discussed end times in this passage with his followers. And um, he instructed them towards one response made up of two words. He said, when it comes to the end times, here's what I want you to do. He didn't, say, uh, he didn't say fear. He didn't say f- control, figure it out. He, didn't, he said one thing. He said, stay awake. Yeah, that's what we're going to look at today, stay awake. Before we get into the text, I do want to give you, because I, I kind of tease this out a little bit, and I don't want to leave you without giving you some sort of tool. So um, here, there's a pamphlet, and I just, I just discovered this pamphlet on, like I got it on Thursday. So I don't have copies of this for you today. Um, let's put up a slide. I'll show you a picture of it. You can find this on Amazon. It's only 4 bucks on Amazon. It's not a book. It's a pamphlet. Or you can get the uh, digital version. You can get it on Kindle for 3 bucks. So you can order this yourself. Or if you don't want to order it yourself, I have 25 copies coming to the, the bookstore. And you can pick them up next Sunday. Don't go out there today. It's all about presents today. Um, but they'll be here next Sunday if, if you want one but you didn't order it. So uh, these go through the four views. And it d- deals with dispensational premillennialism. That's the one that probably a lot of us were exposed to. A lot of us have primarily been shaped by dispensational premillennialism. It's a relatively new school of thought. It's only about 150 years old, which in the scope of church history being 2,000 years old, it's, pre- it's the new kid on the block. Um, there are other views. They're all biblical. They're all rooted in scripture. They all take Jesus' words very seriously. They all believe in rapture. But they they approach some of these things differently. And so this pamphlet just spells it all out. Here's what I love about it. It's pretty objective. I can't even tell which view the author actually holds. And that's actually a good thing because he's been, I think he's been fair to all of them. So I want you to see this and it even includes, so it includes a description of the the primary terminology that you need to be familiar with. It includes a description of each of the four views and it has a little chart in the back showing how they deal with different things. So very helpful. Um, you can just get that. You can stick it in your Bible. And when you come up across passages, you'll then times, then you've got that as a reference. So I would encourage you towards that. Okay. Let's get into our text. As uh, so we're picking up, it's Mark chapter 13. It is the Passion Week. It's also, it's Passover week in Jerusalem, but that happened every year. It's also the Passion Week, which means it's the final year of Jesus, final week of Jesus' earthly life. And specifically, we're picking up on Tuesday. So uh, on Friday, Jesus will be crucified. On Sunday, he will be resurrected. But we're, we're on Tuesday. And already we've, we've studied Tuesday so far, back in chapters 11 and 12. We saw that what happened is uh, on, earlier on Tuesday, he had a lot of conflict and uh, conversations, critical conversations with various religious leader groups and political groups. Uh, those were all pretty combative. Then he had an encounter with this lovely widow who just captured Jesus' heart. And and as we pick up today, it's that same day that both of those interactions have happened. And now Jesus is leaving the temple with his disciples. And one of his disciples says something that triggers a comment from Jesus, just almost like a throwaway comment. Wasn't, Wasn't like a planned teaching as far as we can tell, but Jesus says something and it triggers a lot of fear in the disciples. It triggered for them, um, it was jarring, it was distressing. Let's look at it. Mark 13, verse 1. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, This is Tuesday. Earlier on Monday, Jesus had actually wept over Jerusalem and already began talking about its destruction. Jesus knows that there's something is coming towards Jerusalem and towards, towards the, the, the people that is going to be violent and destructive, and he's grieved by it. So he's kind of picking up on that thread, and he says, do you see these stones? Now, the stones, th- these stones, Josephus, the Jewish historian, would tell us that these stones, some of, these, some of them were um, 8 feet tall by 12 feet wide. Okay, so real quick visual. The tips of my fingers, I can reach about 8 feet tall. So these stones would be that tall, and I my wingspan, wings, <laughs> my wingspan is about almost six feet, so double that, so eight feet by twelve feet. That's how big these stones were, and and they're like and they and, and that's impressive. This is before bulldozers and you know cranes and heavy equipment and mining operations like. This is impressive that they've quarried these stones and, and put them together. Jesus says not one will be left standing upon the other. Let me give you an artist's rendering. We've looked at this, this visual before, but here's a quick view of the temple. That's the whole temple complex. The temple itself is the, the big one that's, that's got the highest elevation on it there. But let me just real quickly, to be clear, this is not the temple we read about in like Chronicles. Uh, this is not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was actually destroyed about 600 years previously when the Babylonians came against Israel. So Solomon's temple was wiped out. This is now what's called Herod's temple. Uh, it's been under construction for over 46 years at this point. And it was started by Herod the Great. Herod the Great was um, a political leader who wanted to curry favor with the religious community. And so he, built, he rebuilt the temple. And he tried to rebuild it more impressive than Solomon's, which is quite a feat. When you read Solomon's temple, it's um, quite a feat. But again, he's trying to curry favor, so he builds a big temple. So um, it's been under construction for 40 years, 46 years. It's still under construction. It's still being added to. For example, there was a gold chain that went, uh, that went around the, the temple, and they were still adding to that chain because people were bringing offerings and they were completing it. So... Um, very big, I do not go into all the details of it right now. Biblical historian Craig Keener says this about it though. He said, it was one of the largest and most magnificent structures in the ancient world. It was, one side of it was covered with plates of gold so that at the rising of the sun in the morning, the sun reflecting off of the plates of gold was so, um, so dazzling that people had to turn their eyes away because it was so brilliant. This was an impressive, So, so when this, Disciples walk out and he's like, Jesus, check this out. This is is the statement of an awestruck tourist. Remember, most of Jesus' disciples, they came from up north, from northern Israel, like Capernaum area. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were agricultural workers. They've they've heard about the temple in the big city, but like, this is like awestruck tourist. But then comes Jesus' warning. He says, not one stone will be left upon the other. I want you to hear how they experience that. Because they don't just experience that with kind of a casual like, oh, really? That's curious. Like for them, that's horrific. Because as a people, this is the embodiment of who they are as a people. They're not going to let their temple be destroyed apart from the decimation of their people. This is is nothing less than Jewish annihilation to say that the temple will be destroyed again. Right? Right? The closest thing that we could think of is, is, if I, is if we had someone who was deemed trustworthy that said, hey, um, there's coming a, a moment where the capital, the U.S. capital in Washington, D.C. is going to be laid waste. It will be another ground zero, just like 9-11, right? It's comparing something to their past and using that to say it's, there's something coming that's on that same scale. And because the Jewish people would never let that happen to their temple— this can only mean the, the utter destruction of them as a people. The warning, Jesus says that, and then he just lets it hang kind of hangs over them like a dark cloud as they make their way out of Jerusalem. Remember, during Passion Week, the pattern was that Jesus would, uh, would be in, in Jerusalem, proper inside the city walls, inside the temple teaching during the day. And then the evening, he would leave the city and go out to spend the night uh, in Bethany with some of his closest friends. So now they're making their way out of the temple. Verse 13, they, they're, they're now on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... Peter and James, John and Andrew. These are four brothers that are all fishermen from Capernaum. or two brothers, Peter and James are brothers, John and Andrew are brothers. Or Peter and Andrew, James and John are brothers. Tell us, when will these things be, they said, and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus' dark warning has been kind of hanging over them ever since they left the temple. They're making their way out of the city, up the Mount of Olives, and finally, they, they're, they're bothered by it. I think they've probably tried to, to dismiss it. This is one of his parables, right? This is, this is one of those riddles that he tells. But no matter how they come up with how to explain it, it just doesn't comfort them because of what he said and the darkness of it. So finally, they pull him aside and they say, when? When is this coming? I think Jesus probably pauses and he, he looks across the temple. And again, this is Jesus who just the day before, 24 hours before, was weeping over Jerusalem. So he's not saying this is someone who is filled with retribution or spite or meanness. He's grieved about what's coming. The meaning of their question, the question they ask, they say, what will be the sign? How do we know it's coming? And when are all these things about to be accomplished? And Matthew records this same, this same inner exchange. He gives a little more clarity to their question. Matthew 24, three reads like this. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's the, that's the clarification that Matthew offers. Of the end of the age. Do you catch what just happened? The destruction of the temple can only mean the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world, Q, Michael Stipe, (laughs) R-E-M. They they connect the two because, because they would never allow the temple to be destroyed again apart from the people being utterly decimated. So to them, this sounds like the end of the world, which does in fact mean the dawning of a new age. They expected the day of the Lord to be a day of both destruction of God's enemies, and of rescue of God's people, so it has that kind of mixed emotion of that there's some fear there and also some hope. But the destruction of the temple, clearly, that's, that means that's the end of the world as we know it, right? That's what they ask. So verse five, Jesus begins to explain. Jesus began to say to them, "See that no one leads you astray." I want you to notice, I, I've taken the liberty of in the passage, I've highlighted the, the pronouns, because they're not consistent. Jesus speaks to them. He says, you, and then at some point, he changes the pronoun. So we're going to watch for that. Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. This is the beginning. There, there is a new life emerging, and it's going to come from, from I mean, that image of birth, it's, it's violent, and it's new life. Jesus says, you, it's referring to his first century listeners. Verse 9, but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake and you will bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. He says, here's the thing, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The question is before what? what before what? Before the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the context is when will these things happen? Read the book of Acts. The book of Acts details and narrates the first, about the first 30, 35 years of the church following Jesus' resurrection. And as you read the book of Acts, it's, it, there's two themes that are happening. One is there is intense opposition to the gospel, and there's also an unstoppable spread of the gospel, and an unstoppable expansion. It's opposed and, and it just keeps expanding. So it starts in Jerusalem and it reaches. What did Jesus say? He said, take this gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus here says the gospel must be first preached to all nations before this thing comes. There's a, uh, there's a verse in Colossians chapter one that was written in the early 60s. This is Paul writing to the church in, Col- in the Colossae. Again, this is about 30 years or so after Jesus spoke this. Paul writes, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. It's, it, is the, it is the mandate of every generation of God's people to reach their world with the gospel. I just want you to realize the first century disciples—they did that. They reached the gospel in, in their or they reached the world in their generation. Jesus goes on to say in verse 11, And when they bring you to trial and they deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You can think about the book of Acts. You can read the book of Acts and just overlay it with this. And everything that Jesus is describing here happens in the book of Acts. Verse 14, but when you see the, when you, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then this is a little insert from the author, from Mark. He says, let the reader understand. It's a little parenthetical (laughs) explanation. Let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. When you see something that, that speaks of desolation, and we'll talk about this here in a minute, but when you see that, that's the sign, run. Flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. They, they used the top of their house as a porch for, for reclining, for prayer, for growing vegetables. He says, don't go back inside the house. Don't take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and those for nursing infants in those days. The little parenthetical that Mark inserts, let the reader understand, it indicates that Mark thinks his audience should be able to connect some of the dots. Mark is writing. So Mark is, he's John Mark. If you read the book of Acts, there's a place where Paul takes John Mark on his first missionary journey. And John Mark turns back. And so the next missionary journey, Paul doesn't want to take him again. That, that's the same Mark that writes this book. He, he, he was restored to good fellowship because he ends up with Peter in Rome and he's writing Peter's memoirs. We have the book of Mark because he's listening to Peter as his source. And so here he is, Mark says, he's writing from Rome. And he says, some of this stuff that I'm writing to you, was written in the early 60s, you guys should be able to connect the dots at this point. Let the reader understand. Luke twenty one twenty clarifies it in this way. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know desolation has come near. So let's, talk, let's pause right there. I'm gonna talk a little bit about the destruction of Jerusalem. that happened in 70 AD. It actually began earlier than that, but culminated in 70 AD. And so let's talk about that for just a moment. Um, so here's the destruction of the Jerusalem and the temple. There was a Jewish war with Rome that began in 66 AD. It culminated, climaxed in 70 with the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. It actually kept going beyond that, but that was the climax. Uh, it began with rebellion against oppression and injustice. It was the, the Jewish people declaring, um, wanting freedom from the oppressiveness of Rome. The emperor Nero eventually sent Vespasian, a general. He was an experienced and proven general. Some of his other generals weren't able to, to quash the rebellion. And so he sent Vespasian in 67. Uh, then Vespasian, so Vespasian, he fought with the, the, uh, the Hebrew people for a period of time. Eventually he wasn't successful and got called back to Rome. He was, he was well, he wasn't finished. I'll put it that way. He was successful, but he wasn't finished he got called back to Rome. And so his son was sent in his place, Titus. So Titus went in AD 69. And what happened is there were three rebel groups within Jerusalem, three different factions of Jewish people who were all fighting for control of Jerusalem. And they were fighting to keep this war going on against Rome. And they fought for control of Jerusalem. And the general public was just kind of caught in the crossfire. So the general public of Jerusalem was caught in the crossfire between these three factions and between Titus who had sieged Jerusalem and had it encircled with armies. So there's a Roman historian named Tacitus. I want you to hear how he characterized this time in, in this is not just Jewish history, this is world history um, from Tacitus, He said, the history in which I am now entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword. There were three civil wars. There were more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. He's writing from Israel's, or from Rome's perspective. Italy was distressed by disasters unknown before or returning after the lapse of the ages. Beside the manifold misfortunes that befell mankind, there were prodigies in the skies and on the earth, warnings given by thunderbolts and prophecies of the future, both joyful and gloomy, uncertain and clear. That's, a, that's a, a Roman historian's perspective on this period of history. Meanwhile, Josephus, he was a, a Jewish historian. He gives us the clearest um, view of, of things from his perspective during this time. Is what he had to say about the factions fighting in, in Jerusalem. He said, they fought it out and they did everything that the, that the besiegers could want them to do. So these are the factions fighting within city walls. They fought it out. They did everything that the besiegers could want them to do. For they never suffered anything from the Romans that they did not inflict on each other. The sedition destroyed the city and the Romans destroyed the sedition. Brother rising against brother. The sedition destroyed the city. The Romans destroyed the sedition. During the siege of Jerusalem by Titus, the food supply of the city was cut off externally. by, By surrounding the city, they cut off any food coming into the city but it was also destroyed. What they had already inside the city was destroyed internally. This is from the works of Josephus. I've been reading Josephus this week. And um, not the whole thing, obviously, but um, listen to this period from this time, page 329. The three warring camps regularly rushed out and burned each other's food supplies. So food supplies cut off from outside. The factions inside are are trying to, to defeat one another. Thus, the area around the temple became a mass of ruins. Great stores of grain, which would have supplied the besieged for years, were destroyed, and the city would fall to self-imposed famine. Terrorized by the bloody contentions of the three factions, many prayed, these are the, just the regular people inside, many prayed that the Romans might come and deliver them from the internal strife. There was no other hope of escape since the three parties disagreeing on everything else, united in putting to death, any of their brothers who favored peace with Rome. This is violent. Why was Jesus weeping? He foresaw this. Titus actually started his siege during Passover. So not only was the city the capital city, but it was very full. It was the population swells during Passover. Josephus actually estimates that during this four-year span, 1.1 million Jews died and another almost 100,000, 97,000 were taken captive. Let me read one more section. Meanwhile, as Titus's earthworks were progressing, this is during the final siege of the city, his troops captured any who ventured outside to look for food. When caught, they resisted, and then they were tortured and crucified before the walls as a terrible warning to the people inside. Titus pitied them, some 500 were being captured daily. But dismissing those captured by force was dangerous, and guarding such numbers would imprison the guards. So out of rage and hatred, the soldiers were allowed to nail their prisoners in different postures. So great was the number that space could not be found for the crosses. The whole landscape was completely denuded of trees because they, they, they cut down all the trees. Garden of Gethsemane, the the, the mountain that Jesus is currently on, everything was denuded in order to build earthworks, ramps, and in order to crucify people on. When the city was eventually taken, the violence continued. In one night, 2,000 refugees that were captured were cut open in hopes of taking gold out of them. They, they, they discovered that somebody had swallowed gold in order to, to take it out of the city. And so they decided to just cut open the refugees to and searched their entrails to see if they could retrieve more gold. 2,000 refugees were cut open in one night. Josephus describes the, the volume of blood flowing through the city at this time as so much blood that it extinguished some of the fires that had been set. Jesus says in verse 18, pray that it may not happen in winter. For those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be again. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false, Christs, false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Many self-proclaimed deliverers did arise during this time, claiming to be God's instrument for victory against Rome and they led many people to their death. But history also tells us, this is Eusebius, a fourth century church historian, that during this period of time, as Titus was closing in on the city, there were Christians who remembered what Jesus had said about three decades previously. They'd been circulating this teaching. That's why we still have it. And they recognized this, this is it. This is the sign. And, and they fled the city, and they went, went to the, the mountains of Pella, at the same time that other people were coming in to the city seeking to find shelter. So all of that brings to a conclusion, Jesus' warning about what would happen, when to flee. Jesus wanted them to to be preserved in order to preach the gospel another day. But remember, he also said the end is not yet. So if the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem was not the end of the ages, if that's not the end of the world as we know it, then... When is that? Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Did you catch the interchange with the time and the pronouns? After that thing, after the destruction of the temple, then there's going to be a different people. It won't be you, it'll be they. Then they will see it. And then he he gets into this apocalyptic language, which borrows from Old Testament imagery from from like Ezekiel, Daniel. Like it's always this cosmic language, but it's language that speaks to the end of the ages. Apocalyptic language was used to describe the end of the present world order and the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. It was always cosmic and sweeping. So he says, after that happens, then they will see Jesus coming. They will see me coming. Here's what Jesus is doing. Let's put up this slide. This is what we call telescoping prophecy. Telescoping prophecy. There's two two images there, one overlaying the other. There's a smaller one and then a bigger one. Like the Old Testament prophets, Jesus attached a distant prophecy to a near one so as to verify for future generations that the word is true. So Jesus holds up two things. And the, and the second part, the bigger part, is reliable because the first one happened. So there's a clear sequence, but here's what's not clear. See that? Okay, go back to the other slide. See that when you see that there's two things and there's one, there's a clear sequence. There's this one, this one, and then this one, right? First, this is going to happen, and then they will see the Son of Man coming. What you can't see is when you turn it sideways, you, there's no depth perception. You can't see how big the gap is in between the two events. It's like looking at two mountaintops at a distance and seeing two mountaintops, but not being able to see how big or how deep is the valley between the two. So this is, but this is what what Jesus did. He said, you can be sure and future generations can be sure that the second thing's gonna happen, that I am going to come back because I've told you about the first thing and it does happen. That's why I went through all the detail. I wanted you to, I didn't want, I'm not trying to, to horrify you with what happened in Jerusalem. But Jesus' words came true. And the whole point of him saying that in advance and warning them was so that they could get out and also the future generations would have some assurance, he is coming back. If the first one happened, the second will too. We just don't know when. That being the case, we're looking at, We're not looking at all of eschatology or all end times passages. We're looking at chapter 13 today. But of chapter 13, the only thing that remains in this chapter that specifically addresses our day that's remaining to, to, to be fulfilled is verse 24 through 27. Let's go back to that real quick. 24 through 27. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they... We'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. That's the moment that's typically known as the rapture. What happens in conjunction with the rapture, that's that's where these four differ about what happens. So <laughs> Jesus goes on to say, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer's near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. This is why he gives them this assurance. We're saying these things will not, these things will happen before this generation passes away. Generation was, he speaks this around the early 30s AD. Generation was about 40 years Destruction of Jerusalem was 70 AD. So it has happened. It gives us assurance that what he's spoken is true, that his promise that he will return and will complete making all things new. We have assurance of that because we have this historical fact of his word coming true. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD was the fig tree branching out and becoming tender putting out leaves. Once that happened, we can know that he's near. What Jesus doesn't offer is a whole series of telescoping prophecies. He doesn't say, well, first this will happen in Jerusalem and this will happen and this will happen. And this." he doesn't give a whole series. He gives one in their time and one in the future. One for their day and one to come, which brings Jesus to application. What should they then do? And what should we then do? Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour. So he just switched. He said, these things are going to happen in this generation. This generation will not pass away before these things happen. But then he goes on to say, but concerning that day, that future one, the one that's behind, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. So be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. In this final application, Jesus has two themes. One, He says, you do not know, you will not know. He didn't say this so that we can figure out a time and a place. And and over church history, in every single generation or every single century, people have predicted the date and said, this is when Jesus will come back. It was never his intention. He just said it three times, you will not know. There's, There's four views because there's a bit of a mystery to it. I, we, this is not biblical truth. This is just, I just offer this to you to say that there's a mystery. And maybe some of the things that you've been taught should be held in an open hand because we don't know. What he does say is to keep awake, stay awake. He closes with these, this final passage. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, even each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, Stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus emphasized that what he said to that first group of, of his listeners, he was saying to all the future generations, stay awake and be ready be about the father's business. That's why he uses this little parable. He says, well, it's like a guy going away and he leaves everybody and he leaves his servants in charge. When he comes back, he wants to find them having been about the family business. He's saying, I'm leaving this to you. And when I come back, I want to find you about the father's business. So what does it look like for us to stay awake? To not be lulled into a numbing sleep as if nothing's ever going to change. The world's just going to keep going as it is. What does it look like for us to stay awake? I can tell you it can't look like trying to pinpoint the exact return, but it can look like living expectantly. Peter was, again, he was one of the four who came and asked this question. And as he sat in Rome in the late 60s, facing his own death under Nero, he he fully expected to be martyred under Nero. He wrote to Christians living back in Judea, and this is what he said. This, this is his, now when you listen to this, you can hear his understanding of what Jesus just said. First Peter 4, the end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and be sober minded so that you may pray. Above all, so here's what he thinks it looks like to stay awake. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We're going to close with... Just some application questions. Jesus' application instructions were to stay awake. And I don't think that looks exactly the same for each one of us. I think there's some room for the Holy Spirit to, to speak to each one of us specifically about what it looks like to fall asleep and what it looks like to stay awake. And so... Um, Would you stand with me? If you're you're here in the room, if you want to stand. Just to kind of shift things up. Now it's it's time for us to actually respond and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. I'm going to put two questions up here. The first question has to do with falling asleep. What behaviors, what choices, what values, what relationships, what habits cause you to live as though asleep? As if this world is all there is and Jesus is not returning. What things cause you to sleep? And secondly, on a more positive, what behaviors, what choices, values, relationships, habits, what can help you to live as one who is expectant that Jesus could return at any moment? You know, Peter said, as good stewards of God's varied grace, Serve one another with whatever you've received. I don't think it's going to look the same for every one of us to be faithful, but it does look like something. Staying awake looks like something. What's on your heart to do in this world that reflects God's kingdom? His, his kingdom expanding, his justice, his healing expanding. What does it look like for you? And what does it look like to, to not steward your life well, to just waste it on falling asleep. I ask you to close your eyes and I'm just going to make some silence. That's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to ways that we may be living right now that are effectively falling asleep. That if you came back, we would be ashamed of how we'd stewarded our lives. spirit may be bringing conviction maybe areas of your life that you know are sinful it may be areas that are just not God's best they're just a waste allow the Holy Spirit to do that if he's bringing conviction it's for the purpose of healing What do you sense God inviting into? Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and our hearts to see the things that you've placed before each one of us? The passions you've placed within our hearts, the things you've given us to care about, the things that reflect your kingdom and your ways, your righteousness, your goodness, your intention for your creation. Would you open our hearts to that and and help us to sense your invitation to yield ourselves to you with greater faithfulness that if you were to come back today or tomorrow, we would be found being busy with the Father's work. Lord Jesus, we we don't know when you will come back. We have the assurance that you are making all things new, that you will finish what you've begun. And Lord, we have the invitation from you to receive life from you, to receive the assurance of eternal life, to begin living that now and and extending it to others. Lord Jesus, would you awaken in us an assurance that you are coming back, not for the purpose of fear, but for the purpose of hope and for love. That we would spend our lives and our opportunities lovingly for the sake of others, for your glory. Holy Spirit, may we sense your invitation to repent of the things we need to repent of, to renounce the things we need to renounce and to receive the things that we need to receive. Would you help us to be a people who respond to you? That we would be a people who are in fact awake and expectant and ready. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. as we close this morning our worship team is going to be here just leading us for a moment and uh, we're going to have opportunity for ministry we have teams that can minister just pray with you if you came with needs for prayer in any sense if you want to respond to today's message if you need healing whatever that is on both sides of the stage over here by the stairs you can just come here and somebody will come and pray with you Apart from that, you're welcome to to stay and just worship. And um, we're going to formally dismiss, so if you need to go get your kids, you can do that. But um, if you don't have something pressing, I'd invite you to just stay and respond with the uh, family of God. Apart from that, go make the Invisible God visible, and don't forget your Whittier box and tags. listening to respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes please email prayer at vineyardboise.org and if possible include your phone number we'd love to get in touch with you thanks